0: Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Lord Jesus, He is King over all the earth. Just came back last night from the Pentecostal World Conference in Calgary. There were 5,000 delegates from 74 nations around the world. It was an amazing gathering. Uh, one of our speakers, Dr. Lee from South Korea, his church numbers almost 900,000. Just one church. Can you imagine your congregation alone making up about 0.3% of the entire church around the world, but uh, incredible things that God is doing by his spirit around the world. We so uh, so appreciate it, being there and just hearing the hearts of just men and women of God that God is using, but also just to hear the reports of what God is doing in the church. You know, if you listen to the media or you listen sometimes to secular reports, you almost think the church is on the decline, and it may be in some religions, some denominations rather, in, in North America, but uh, the church is not on the decline. It's been on a steady increase. In fact, if you just count your crazy, spirit-filled, tongue-talking Pentecostals, we comprise about 675 uh, million believers around the world. 675 million. That's just Pentecostals, right? That's not counting our Baptist friends and our Catholic friends and the Charismatics and Anakins and everything in between. There are other religions around the world that are growing uh, quite quickly, but mainly because of birth rates, having eight or ten children. Uh, but the body of Jesus Christ, literally, that's true. Uh, that's really why you're seeing some increase in those religions. But the body of Jesus Christ is growing through new births, spiritual births, at an incredible rate around the world. And uh, God's uh, stirring the heart of His church. He's certainly stirring the heart of the Western church. And I believe we're going to begin to see a lot of those things taking place on our own shores. But uh, it was really exciting. We'll bring some more uh, more reports in the days ahead. I mentioned. A couple weeks ago, and I believe it's in your new newsletter there, but uh, beginning September 15th, I'll be beginning a series for the fall entitled A Matter of Time. We're going to be looking at uh, at the last days, the book of Revelation, the church in the last days, what the Lord is not only going to be doing in those days, but also what the Lord is doing today. And I really believe that much of what He's doing today is in preparation for what is ahead, what He's leading the church into. And uh, what the impact the church is going to have in the world before the Lord comes. And so we're going to be looking through the book of Revelation. I think you'll find it interesting. If you want to know uh, when, in the sequence of events and last times, a rapture takes place, you'll find out. You say, I thought it was a secret. No, the Bible makes it clear. But we'll talk about that and some other things. Um, as we get into the word in the fall, we welcome you to come. Uh, please pray for our castle team, the ministry this morning in Amherst. We have about 30 or 40 of our uh, youth and children and some adults that are away this morning. And obviously still have a lot of folks on vacation. So we look forward to uh, getting back with you. As I mentioned, I was away and just kind of meditating on what to share this morning. And a scripture came to mind uh, that actually uh, I spoke on probably 10 or 11 years ago. You'll remember it very well. Um, <laughs> I, at least one or two of you may. Unfortunately, I couldn't find my old sermon notes, but I did remember the Scripture. And uh, so it came to mind, and and I was just kind of unpacking things and on the plane as well yesterday, so we'll see see how well it turns out. But uh, uh, the Scripture is found in Genesis chapter 24, and uh, you may recall the story. It's the story of Abraham, who by this time is about 140 years old. His son Isaac is 40 years of age, and it's a high time that he finds a wife for his son. That was the father's job. Well, being of that age... Uh, Abraham commissions his servant to uh, go back to his homeland and to find a bride for his wife, not to take a wife uh, from around the area, the Canaanite women, but to go back to his homeland. There's a wonderful lesson in there as well because, uh, you know, God understood very clearly that, that he had a distinct call upon Abraham's life and his descendants that wouldn't go well if they began to mingle with other religions and other belief systems around them. So, that servant is commissioned to go back to the homeland and to find a woman. Now, this is no small task, as you can appreciate, because not only does he have to find uh, the perfect, uh, you know, young woman for his, for his uh, servant, for his uh, master Isaac, but he also has to convince this young woman to leave her home, leave her family, travel to a country where she has never been, to marry a man that she has never seen. Okay? So just imagine... The, the weight on this servant's shoulder, oh, how am I going to find not only a woman, I mean, you might find a woman who wants to get into a bad situation, but how am I going to find a good woman, the right woman, uh, the woman that God has for my servant, or my, my master Isaac, rather? We pick up in Genesis 24 in verse 10, and we read as follows. Then the servant left, taking with him ten of his master's camels, loaded with all kinds of good things from his master. He set out for Aram and made his way to the town of Nahor. He had the camels kneel down near the well outside the town. It was toward evening, the time the women go out to draw water. Then he prayed, Lord God of my master Abraham, make me successful today and show, me, show kindness to my master Abraham. See, I am standing beside this spring, and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. May it be... That when I say to a young woman, please let down your jar that I may have a drink, and she says, Drink, and I'll water your camels too. Let her be the one you have chosen for your servant Isaac. By this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Before he had finished praying, Rebekah came out with her jar on her shoulder. She was the daughter of Bethuel, son of Mirka, who was the wife of Abraham's brother Nahor. The woman was very beautiful. A virgin. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up again. The servant hurried to meet her and said, Please give me a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered the jar to her hands and gave him a drink. After she had given him a drink, she said, I'll draw water for your camels too, until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough, ran back to the well to draw more water, and drew enough. For all his camels. Without saying a word, the man watched her closely to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the, Lord took, uh, the man took out a gold nose ring, which was nice back in those days, in case you're wondering, ladies. Uh, uh, it was nice jewelry. And two gold bracelets. I came across an article in the Financial Post, it's actually from back 2015, but the article was entitled, A Worrisome Trend for Canada's Workforce. And here's just a few things that this report uh, said. It said, 88% of business owners feel the biggest barrier to hiring is the lack of qualified applicants with unrealistic wage expectations. 25% of job applicants, they said, didn't even bother showing up for their interview. 61% of business owners felt employees spend too much time on personal phone calls, emails, and texting during work hours. And among the hindrances they listed at work included gossip, personal web surfing, excessive lateness, and the abuse of sick days. Now, on the bright side, 81% of employers reported that they had at least one employee who went the extra mile for a customer. That's not all bad. On this Labor Day Sunday, I'd like to take this story from out of this ancient context and apply it to you and me as followers of Jesus Christ in our workplace. Now, you may or may not be working. You may be retired, whatever your situation may be. But as I focus on the workplace this morning, you may be able to, you can apply these same principles. It may be to your marriage. It may be to your relationship, your neighbor's ministry, whatever it may be, the same principles apply. But we're going to focus a little bit on the workplace this morning. And let me ask you this, would it be an exaggeration to say that while there are a lot of hardworking people in the workforce, and you may be one of them, that there are also many people who go to work today with this attitude, the attitude, why should I do more than I have to do? Why should I do more that I'm being paid to do. And that's quite a contrast to Rebecca. In fact, it kind of struck me funny when I read this, that the servant worshipped God for directing him to the right woman. The woman who said, yes, I'd be happy to do what you asked me to do. And even more than that, I'll give you a drink. And while you're resting, I'll draw water for your camels too. Can you imagine the relief that this servant uh, experienced when he found this young woman? And I thought. I, I wonder if, if employers don't feel the same way. Any of you here this morning, employers, supervisors, managers, anybody at all? Just lift your hand. Do we have any? We got a few here. Yeah. I mean, how do you feel? Don't you kind of worship God when you just land that employee who actually works? <laughs> now, I know this kind of sounds like a you know, broad generalization here, but when you have somebody that actually does their work well and, and goes beyond. I mean, isn't that somebody that you want to keep around? Don't you kind of whisper a prayer of thanksgiving? I'm sure that even a person doesn't know the Lord, he thanks God when he finds somebody like that. Now, I don't know a whole lot about camels. They're actually called a dromedary. I found that much out. If they have one hump. They're called a dromedary. There's three different species. But through a simple Google search, what I did discover is that a camel, try to understand the grasp of this, a camel can drink 53 gallons of water in three minutes. Some places say less than 15. Others say in three minutes. That's why we have these buckets up here. These are five-gallon buckets. There are 10 of them. So a camel can drink this much water in like three or four minutes. And we could add another bucket if you want to go 53. That's a lot of water, okay? Uh, I, I see Reem shaking her head down here. Maybe She's probably seen a few camels in Syria. And so they can drink a whole lot of water. So just keep that in your mind for a minute. 53 gallons in three minutes. How many camels were in Abraham's caravan? Ten. Okay? So look at this. Multiply it by ten. That's how much water it would take to water ten camels. Okay? Are you kind of getting your mind around this? probably 500 gallons of water to water these camels that Rebecca said that she'd be happy to water. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but across my mind, usually when you read about caravans in the Bible, you remember the Magi, the men from the East who came to see Jesus, came in a caravan, a lot of times, most times, if I don't know if anywhere else in the Scripture, the actual number of camels are mentioned in the caravan. It's just as they traveled, they journeyed, they had a caravan, whatever, And so I thought, you know, is there a reason, Lord, why you've mentioned that there are 10 camels? What's the big deal? And I think that maybe one of the reasons may be is to underline, for us to grasp exactly the task that was at hand for Rebecca, which she offered not only to give this man a drink of water, but she seized the caravan and she says, hey, and while you're resting, I'll water all those animals. On top of that, the Scripture tells us in verse 11 that she came with to draw water at a time when the other ladies in the the village were drawing water. So what that means is that she fills her five-gallon bucket, however big it was, she goes and pours it in the trough, and she goes to the end of the line to get the next bucket. So this was not just a matter of taking a garden hose and filling the trough. I mean, this was a commitment. We're not told how long it took. We're just told that the man watched her closely until she was finished. It could have taken the whole night. This was a long commitment to water all of these camels who, remember, have traveled this long, long distance. And what I also notice is the tone of Rebecca's response. It's a very generous response. She says, drink, my Lord. She doesn't say, are you nuts? She says, drink, my Lord, and then I'll draw water for your camels too while you're resting until they have had enough. And when I read that, I realize that he, first of all, is captivated by the physical beauty of this woman. But as he begins to see her demonstrate what we would call this Christ-likeness, this spirit of generosity, he begins to see the beauty of her spirit, of how really beautiful this woman is, how well just rounded she is, a whole person that she is. I mean, you can be attracted to a beautiful person whether it's a woman or a man, spend five minutes conversation and all of a sudden they're pretty ugly. Like there's just like no attraction whatsoever, right? There's got to be more than just physical appearance. And so he just sees this beauty of this woman by her response. Now, I don't know if we're beginning to get the picture here this morning yet, but I'm so thankful to the Lord for what he's doing in so many people's lives here at Glad Toddy. just the, the stories we get time and time again of people just stepping out as they're being led by the Spirit or just feeling compassion. And even just this past week at, uh, at conference, I stayed at a hotel probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes outside of the city. And uh, car rental was too expensive, so I just got a bus pass. And so I was busing it and, and subways, whatever you call it, the trolley. And uh, but really enjoyed that because I got a chance just to meet people, talk to people, had a chance to pray for people, see the Lord touch people. So it was really a great week in between all the sessions. And so we've been experiencing a lot of those kind of stories. In fact, even last week, we remember the Lord gave us a little word of knowledge, and I found that after the service, there were a couple of people that were healed—their eyes, and their ears—and then the Lord just instantly, bang, 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 pop, pop, and, and clear things up. And so it's exciting to see all those different things that the Lord is doing as we step out in faith and allow the Lord to use us. And I pray He continues to do that. But when I read this story, I'm reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said this. He said, unless your lives, you may remember that another translation says, unless you surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. In this translation, it says, unless your lives are more pure and more full of integrity than the religious theologians, you'll never experience the realm of God's kingdom. You'll never experience the dimensions of what it means for the kingdom of God, not only to be real, not only to believe in the kingdom, you'll never experience the kingdom of God happening where you are. You'll never experience those dimensions taking place around you, witnessing the influence of your life for his kingdom, where you live and where you work. And and one of the areas I'm convinced where you can distinguish yourself is so much more than just a religious people. I mean, how many of us work in places where you work with people who go to church? right? You work with people who go to church. And, and, and that might be fine. But my question is whether or not they really stand out for the right reasons. Because you see, what the Scripture is saying is that there's a way in which you can actually distinguish yourself. You can actually have a faith that's attractive to people. You can actually have a walk with God that's a beautiful thing that people look at and, and people admire. I thought of a story, but I, I, I can't tell you. Well, I kind of can, but I'm not sure how to word it. Oh, I'm <laughs> yeah, we set that up. Um, now, I haven't thought it through. I'll say the wrong thing. My wife is just she's say, dozing. Say <laughs> but my question is, you know, we often want to be a witness for the Lord, but we forget how we can be a witness at the very place that we spend probably more than half of our waking hours every single day. Our greatest place of ministry, I believe, it's not that specialized area we serve in the church for a few hours every week. Our greatest witness is not how we respond only. I mean, it's good too, but it's not just how we respond in those kind of emergency situations. Because I find that people, whether they know the Lord or not, a lot of people rise to the challenge. Jesus says that our greatest witness, our greatest ministry, is in the extras that we put into our life every day. It's the above and beyond that we put into our work. Now, I know some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, you don't understand. You only work one day a week. <laughs> yeah, but it's a long day. Okay? It's like a six-hour day for me on Sundays. <laughs> Actually, you know what I've done is, since the beginning of my ministry? And this might, I don't know, maybe this is a religious spirit or something, but my guide, my work ethic in ministry has always been this. I try to use as a gauge the person who is most involved in our church, who's working a full-time job, put it in 40-plus hours, and then saying, okay, how much time do they put in the ministry? They're out Sunday morning, just like I am. They're out through the week, maybe all told another 10 hours. That's my gauge. That's always been my gauge in ministry. And I also feel that way as a husband because my wife works a full-time job. She gets a half hour for lunch, two 15-minute breaks. She can't goof off and do something, come and go, and all that kind of stuff. She works. Then she comes to church on Sunday. Then she's, you know, involved in some ministries. So to me, I feel that's the least I should be doing. And so if I have the odd week where there's, you know, a lot of meetings going on through the week, well, then I'll take my day or day and a half kind of thing. But if I've got a a light week with not a whole lot of meetings on at night, well, then I'll be here Sunday Sunday to Friday. Where's Carolyn? Can I say that truthfully, Carolyn? Are you around? I think she's, maybe she stepped out. She had to leave at that part. Didn't want, didn't want to incriminate herself. I saw her walking with Amber this morning. So. But I can say that with, with Carolyn being here. And it's not any kind of bondage. It's just a simple work ethic of saying, okay, what is it we're expecting of the body of Christ? Well, if we're expecting that, well, then I need to model that same. It's not a bondage. It's just simply a gauge. My point very simply is this that as important as our ministry in the church is and as exciting as it is to see the Lord use us in the marketplace, that the most effective witness we have is when we put this Rebecca principle into practice where people know us best. And where most people know us best, it's at work. Now, don't misunderstand me. The Holy Spirit empowers us to do some pretty amazing things, as I touched on earlier, but that's only half the truth. The other half of the truth is the Holy Spirit empowers ordinary people to do ordinary things in extraordinary ways. And that's what really makes our life stand out for the Lord, I believe, in the workplace. The Holy Spirit inspires us to do more than we are asked to do, more than we're forced to do, and more than we're even paid to do. As Jesus taught in Matthew 5 and 40, and I paraphrase, and forgive me for reading my notes this morning, but I just kind of finished this on the plane last night, but But Jesus taught in Matthew 5, he said, if someone insults you, basically respond with kindness. Why? Because when you respond with kindness, you reflect the person of Jesus. But you also realize, and you don't do it for this reason, but when you respond with kindness, you disarm the person's ability to humiliate you. Right? I mean, you don't do it to humiliate them, but as soon as you respond in a different spirit, it just stops. You know, you can kind of tell the person, like, oh, you weren't supposed to do that. We're supposed to have a little tift or something, or, you know, we're supposed to go at it. You, know, you just kind of completely disarm them. That's what Jesus was getting at. And he also said, if people in authority take advantage of you, you remember the illustration he used of the Roman soldier, if he makes you carry his armor or whatever, you know, for a mile, then you offer to go the second mile after you've done the first. He says, if people in authority take advantage of you, then do more than what they're demanding of you. We call it the second mile principle. Jesus said in verse 16, don't hide your light. Let it shine brightly before others so that the commendable things you do will shine as light upon them. And then they will give their praise to God the Father in heaven. They'll say, hey, God is real. I see him in this person's life. The Aramaic word for light, nora, comes or refers to the presence or the countenance of God shining through you because Jesus lives in you. So what they're saying is, what Jesus is saying is that when you allow your light to shine, when you give God opportunity by going that extra mile, that actually you see the countenance of the Lord. A person can see the presence of the Lord in your light. They can see that there is something different about you. And oftentimes, that's what will give you the opportunity and the right to have those witnessing conversations or to speak into their life when they bring up the topic. Now, how does the second mile principle actually flesh itself out where we live and work every single day? Well, the first thing I want us to notice is it means, as a follower of Jesus, I am not to live my life by the measuring stick. You see, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they lived by what you might call the yardstick religion. They did what was required, but they didn't do any more. And even what they did, a lot of the times they kind of did begrudging. If they didn't have to do it, they wouldn't do it. It's a yardstick religion. They didn't. They did it without any real sense of understanding or joy. Listen to what Paul says of the Colossians. I'm reading from the Passion Translation. He says this in chapter three: Let every employee listen well and follow the instructions of their employer, not just when their employers are watching, and not in pretense, but faithful in all things. For we are to live our lives with pure hearts in the constant awe and wonder of our Lord God. Have we ever stopped to say, rather than complain about our job, say, Lord, I I just am in awe I'm thankful that I'm healthy enough to work. I'm just thankful that I have something to provide for my family. Just that awe, that thankfulness for God's provision. He goes on to say, put your heart and soul into every activity you do. As though you are doing it, what? For the Lord himself and not for others. Paul gives the same analogy when he talks to wives. If you have a difficult relationship with your your spouse, and the same goes for husbands, if you have a difficult relationship, you are to honor them, serve them, love them as if doing it to the Lord. You're doing it in honor to the Lord, and in doing that, you're releasing life into that situation, that relationship. For we know that we will receive a reward and inheritance from the Lord. As we serve the Lord, the anointed one, you see, through our work. A disciple will be repaid for what he has learned and followed, for God pays no attention to titles or prestige of men. I like that last line. God pays no attention to titles. You see, what he's saying is the Christian life, the life that truly reflects Jesus Christ, that emulates Jesus Christ, it's a life of excellence. It's a life that is faithful in all It is the life that goes the extra mile to show the presence of Jesus in our lives, just like the presence of the Spirit of God, I'm sure, upon Rebecca. Now, the second mile principle also means this. It means that the only way you get to the second mile is if you do the first mile first. Let me say that again. The only way the second mile even stands out is if you do the first mile first well. You see, it doesn't matter where you work. You can look at somebody, you may even look at a pastor or something, man, you got a dream job. You know, it's just a dream job. There's no such thing. At least I've not found it yet. I mean, they all have their pros and cons, but every single job, I believe, no matter where you work, every job has its measure of routine, doesn't it? There's a certain drudgery. No matter what you do, you still get up, you still go, yeah, there's some better days and some worse days, but there's a lot of routine. But Jesus is saying, Paul is saying is that if we're faithful and diligent in the first mile of our responsibilities, then the second mile will stand out as a witness to the difference that Jesus can make in our lives. And again, if you're not working, apply this to your marriage. Apply this to any relationship. It's the exact same principle, the same truth, and it's life-releasing. What I mean by this is you can't get by doing a sloppy job. And I know some Christians who do this. You can't get by thinking you're pleasing God by doing a sloppy job, doing enough to get by, but then trying to make it up in witnessing. Oh yeah, I'm a real bad employee, but hey, we got a, you know we got a Christmas dinner on. You want to come to church? Somehow that makes up for it. You see, your work ethic is your witness. That's your witness. That's what gives you authority. That's what gives you the right to actually engage in a conversation with someone about the Lord. Do me a favor. If you don't have a work ethic, don't witness. Please don't witness. Don't tell anybody you're a Christian. Just sneak. We won't even tell you to come here, okay? Just come in. Enjoy the Lord. You know, we'll see you in heaven. But don't tell anybody you're a Christian. But in all seriousness, though, I want to encourage you. Don't shirk. The routine tasks. Don't, as the Scripture says, despise small beginnings, small things. Don't fluff those things up because they don't seem really important. Here's another thing. Be punctual. It's a sign of respect. I remember the great theologian, Dr. Phil. I was watching him one day. And this is about probably about 10 years ago, but I've never forgotten this. about 10 years ago. He was talking to this woman who was chronically late, attractive woman, businesswoman sitting across from the chair, and she's big smile, and, and uh, so he was saying, so yeah, so t- you have a problem uh, being late? She said, oh, yeah, I just, can't get, I just can't get anywhere on time, you know, by the time I get ready and on the go, and I get distracted and so on. And he said, you know what your problem is? And she's smiling. He said, you are selfish. You are selfish. Wiped the smile right off her face. And she began to realize, it's true, I'm selfish, because I'm thinking of nobody else. That's why we often say here at Glad Tidings, whether it's prayer meeting, any small gathering, big gathering, seminar, whatever it may be, we start on time. Why? Because we don't believe in punishing the punctual. You made the effort to be here, we start on time. If you're late, you're late, but we start on time. How about this? Don't use a sick day if you're not sick. Hello? Sick days are not vacation days. Sick days are not just extra days to be used up. They are given to you if you are sick. And if you're a Christian and you're not sick, you're a liar. I don't care how sunny it is, how nice it is, if you are not sick. And believe me, if you don't use your sick days, people notice. Your boss notices. You're different than other people. I had somebody tell me a true story. Not that long ago, this person always called in sick on Mondays. Now, now as I'm telling you this story, think about this. This person thought this was normal. They always called in sick on Monday through the spring, summer, fall. And so eventually, one of the higher-ups got a hold of this person, set them down or called them, I don't know, and said, we just see this pattern. Like, every Monday, you seem to be sick. And the guy said, well, yeah, you see, because When the weather's nice, I play golf every Sunday and I have allergies. And so I'm I'm kind of, you know, wasted for a day. So I gotta use my sick day. And and the employer said something brilliant. Think about this, this is radical. Golf on Saturday. (laughs) But see, that's the mindset. And that's why as Christians, if we want to be a witness, the incredible opportunity we have simply at the workplace, simply doing our job, I've always told my boys, listen, you want to get ahead in your workplace, just do your job. I mean, do more than that. But if you just do your job, you'll stand out. If you just do an honest 40 hours a week, if you just do your work without complaining, you will stand out. If you don't use your sick days, if you're not sick, you'll be noticed. And whatever you do, don't goof off because you think you're worth more than the wage you're receiving. You see, when you took your job, you basically signed a contract. And it's the contract that Jesus expects you to honor and he expects you to exceed. So if you don't feel like you're getting paid enough, talk to your job. If you can't, talk to your boss. If you can't get a raise, then give your two weeks or four weeks notice and work somewhere else for more money. But you agreed to work at that place for that wage, so work it. Does that make sense? I know it's taking a lot to process. like... (laughs) Nobody thinks that way. And I know most of us do. But there's the opportunity. You see, professionalism is not determined by your paycheck. It's not determined by your position. Professionalism is determined, defined by your work ethic. That's what it means. You can make $5 an hour, $10 an hour, $50 an hour, and be very professional in what you've done. That's why Paul says that God pays no attention to titles. He's not impressed like people are by our titles. He's impressed by your work ethic. He's impressed by your witness and what you do. If he can find you faithful in small things, then he will lift you up. It's the same in ministry. It's your faithfulness to the first mile that will make others take notice of the second mile. And yet so many people today live by the adage, minimum work for maximum pay. So many who work for the weekend rather than for the satisfaction of actually producing quality work. And yet Jesus cuts through all of that, and he says that if you are a follower of his, you can't live by that principle. Your principle has to be, what do you want me to do? I'll do that. And listen, while you rest, I'll do more. Why don't you take a break? I'll take take the weight off your shoulders. I'll do what you're doing, or I'll do even more than you're asking me. In other words, he's saying, look for opportunities to do the unasked. To do the unexpected. It'll change the way you do your job. It'll change the way you you look at your workplace. And you know what? It might even begin to change your actual workplace. And so we can see the impact the Lord intends our work ethic to have on those around us. But what's in it for you? What's the benefit for us personally? We see in the story here in Rebecca's case, the moment she gave more than she was asked to give, she also received more than she ever could have expected to receive. Jesus said in Matthew 7, with the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And that's more than just a nice little model. That's an actual spiritual principle. That is a promise from God himself. You see, Rebecca had no idea who she was talking to. Rebecca had no idea how her response was going to forever change the trajectory of her life. She had no idea. And as I was preparing this message, I thought, oh, I wish I because I know there's stories out there. I just wish I had a few stories from our congregation of people who just did what God told them to do at the workplace, and it just opened the door for employment, for, for you know, for a, a better position, better pay, more responsibility or trust. I'm sure they're out there. Anybody got, just raise your hand. We will get to talk, but you got stories like that? Yeah, Anybody? You know, you're just doing the job well. And I was at, I, I worked part-time at Greco's when I was, uh, youth pastor part-time in ministry in Dartmouth, where I met Vanessa. This is almost 35 years ago. And uh, so I got in at, at Greco's, and I got in as a driver because you had to be there a long time to work at the counter. So I got in at Greco's, and the chief driver was there for five years. He wanted to work at the counter. And there were other drivers who came and went. Some would work for six months and quit, and whatever. you know, So they weren't there a long time. This guy was there five years. He had five stars on his ball cap. Big star in the middle, two small stars on either side. I still picture him. Five years, five stars, Greco delivery. I was there about three months. A position comes open at the counter. You know, oh, just <laughs> the counter. Didn't have to drive anymore, and I applied. Three months, guess who got the job? <gasps> no star. I wasn't even a star, and I got the job. You know why? Because, and I didn't even think of this. It was just what Christians do. Because I was getting an hourly wage. I was making like five bucks an hour. Back then, it was pretty good money. I'm making a regular hourly wage. So when I get back from my delivery, I don't have a delivery to do. But you see, I'm just a delivery guy. Yeah, I am. But I'm a delivery guy in whom the spirit of God lives. And so I'm still getting paid five bucks whether I sit or drive. And so when I get back to work and there's no orders for a while, what do I do? Something radical. Wait for it. I pick up a broom. I pick up a dishcloth. I work for the remainder of that hour until I get another call. I only did that for three months, 12 weeks, and the boss notices, and the job comes open. Who does he go to, the five-star driver or the person in whom Jesus lives and who had a chance once in a while to talk about Jesus? Vanessa worked there as well for me a little while. She only drove, but um, (laughs) no, she didn't stay too long. I was a little concerned, nighttime deliveries, kind of some weird places, but in any case, um, but that's the simplicity of it. That's how much we can stand out through the simple things we do as the Holy Spirit inspires us to simply have a basic work ethic. But just think of it for a moment. Here's Rebecca. When she spoke these words that revealed the real beauty inside of her, God's plan got activated in her life. And she is actually the ancestor of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Imagine that. Little girl in the village somewhere becomes the great, 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 whatever grandmother of the Messiah. Now, she didn't know it at the time, but that's the whole point. And the same thing happens to you and me when, as Paul says, we put our heart and soul into everything we do as though we're doing it for the Lord Himself and not just for ourselves. We become part of God's plan to reach people around us. And just as importantly, we become part of the solution in our workplace rather than just another part of the problem. Is this too heavy this morning? I know it's, I know it's Labor Day. you getting excited to go back to work on Tuesday? You're going to need to recuperate just to kind of process this. The Bible says that as Rebecca drew water, and I'm done with this, as Rebecca drew enough water for the man and his camels, verse 21. I love this. It caught my attention last night. Without saying a word. The man watched her closely. Now, just keep in mind, he was watching her for a long time because he watched her until all the camels were watered. Maybe 500 gallons. We don't know. Ten camels. You know, it's, it's definitely more than this. And this alone at a well would take a long time. He watches her for a long time until all the camels. Notice he doesn't, you know, three gallons in. Okay, well, she's good enough. You know, five gallons, 20 gallons, one camel, two camels. Well, I guess she passed the. No, no. She waited until every single one of them were watered. He wanted to see what kind of metal she was made of. Was she going to give up after a couple, had good intentions, started out well, but kind of petered off, you know, worked for a little bit, then got tired like everybody else. Oh, this is a drag, you know. No, with joy, 10 camels, she waters them, 500 gallons or more. And I'm done with this. And musicians, if you want to join me, just think about this, saints. We are being watched closely. We are being watched for a long period of time. If you live by this same principle, people are watching you. People notice you. Now, if you don't live by this principle, nobody notices you, right? Because you're just like everybody else. I'm just like everybody else, right? You don't stand out. If you're a pastor, I've been to the same job for 20 years. How can I change now? I guarantee you, because people know you, if you are determined today to say, Lord, I'm going to put this principle in practice, I promise you people will notice you right away. You'll be the topic around the water cooler. What in the world got into them? You can say, it's just the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I'm finally listening to them. I'm finally realizing my greatest opportunity for impact and witness is right here where I rub shoulders with people every single day. It can be in the most mundane kind of job. It can be on a platform, wherever it may be. But when you work with excellence, when you work as as if you're working to the Lord to please Him, when you go the extra mile, when you're honest, right? When you don't call in sick, right? Right? Raise your hand if you promise. This year, I will not call in sick if I'm not sick. Go ahead. Raise your hand. Come on. Because if you don't, we assume you're going to lie. Right? I will not use sick days when I'm not sick. Wouldn't that be wonderful, Lyle? All the people that work with you and for you, if they actually never use sick days unless they were sick, can you imagine the productivity? Friends, that alone will be an incredible witness. It will be an incredible witness. I'm going to put Vanessa on the spot. I can't tell you any secret stuff that she does, but she does not use sick days. She might use one a year, and she has to be half dead in bed. And i tell you this, when it comes to year review, every single year, they notice it. It stands out in some of the stories they tell her of what people do. And yet that integrity, what does that mean? It means that when ministry opportunity comes, there's no conflict, there's no contradiction, there's no hypocrisy. Your life lines up with your witness because they're watching how you live in the little details, the little things that you do, and how you honor life, how you're different. That sets the platform for your witness that when you speak, your words have authority and you have an opportunity to minister to those who lead you and to those who are around you. Let me give you a definition of a Christian work ethic. It's just something I put together from the scriptures we were looking at this morning. I would define it this way, that we put our heart and soul into Well, would you read this with me? We put our heart and soul into everything we do out of gratefulness to God for health and provision and for the dignity and purpose we enjoy in pleasing him with a job well I believe that's a summary of the Christian work ethic. We're going to close this morning with the Lord's table. And we invite you this morning, if you know the Lord, to join us as we uh, participate, as we share in the the bread and the juice. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, we always say this, but it's true, that the table is not meant to keep you away from Him. It's not a barrier. It's a table of invitation. What the Lord asks of us before we participate is, is that we would be one of His. And the way we become one of His is we open our heart to Him. We say, Jesus, I've lived life in my own terms, do my own thing. Please forgive me. I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to be my Lord. Begin to direct my life. I want to live for you. If that's your heart's desire in your own words, you can simply just whisper that prayer to the Lord this morning. And He says, the moment you do that, He washes away our sins and He makes us a son or daughter. Is to come to the table because the table represents that Jesus Christ, who is our bread, who is our wine, the juice, the blood that washes our sins away, that Jesus Christ belongs to us. We belong to him and that we feed on him, that we take our orders from him, that we model our lives after him, but not just by trying to be good people. He actually comes to live in us so that by his power we can live like him because he's living through us. Does that make sense? All we got to do is cooperate we got to do is listen to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. He says, hey, hey, I know everybody else does that, but no, no, you don't do that. I know everybody else works this way, but no, 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 you're different. You're different. This might sound really corny. I remember once, and I'm going to ask the uh, elders to come as we prepare to serve the Lord's table right now, but I was was probably five or six years old, just came to mind, and I was out back playing with some kids, and they were all rowdy, and we were screaming, and acting a fool, and I don't know, it was just kind of nuts. It just kind of seemed chaotic my father pulled me aside, and he said, Paul, what's your last name? I said, Pattison. That's right. You're a Pattison. Smart (laughs) enough. You're a Pattison. Your name means something. It doesn't mean you can't have fun. When you start getting crazy, wacky, and probably getting into trouble, remember who you are. You see? So it's not a condemnation thing, as the Lord's saying, listen, as you go into the said it a thousand times. No, we're not better, but we're what? We're better off. We're better off because we know Jesus Christ. The Lord says live like that, talk like that, work like that, relate like that. Let people see your light. Let them see the countenance, the presence of God through you by honoring the second out so I can use you as a light. Amen. Let's just bow our hearts for a moment, and as you do prepare to receive the emblems, as you bow your heart quietly, just allow the Holy Spirit to show you, to examine your heart, if there's anything that you feel that you need just to confess to him, anything related to the word this morning, the workplace, and he would say, hey, that word was for you, and I want to send you back to your workplace this week. As Maybe just take a moment.